he stepped forward and was asked by the proconsul if he was really Polycarp. When he said yes, the proconsul urged him to deny the charge. Respect your years, he exclaimed, adding similar appeals regularly made on such occasions. Swear by Caesar's fortune. Change your attitude. The governor pressed him further. Swear and I will set you free. Curse. Denounce Christ. For 86 years, replied Polycarp. I've been his servant and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? He saved us. I have wild beasts, said the proconsul. I shall throw you to them if you don't change your attitude. Call them, replied the old man. If you make light of the the beasts, retorted the governor, I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. Polycarp answered very famously. The fire you threaten burns for for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about. The fire of the judgment to come and of eternal punishment. The fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. The proconsul was amazed and he sent the crier to the stand in the middle of the arena to announce three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Then a shout went up from every throat that Polycarp must be burnt alive. The rest followed in less time than it takes to describe. The crowd rushed to collect the logs and branches and when the pyre was ready, Polycarp prayed. And when he had offered up the Amen and completed his prayer, the men in charge lit the fire and a great flame shot up. That is, uh, Eusebius is, is a historian, this is his account of the martyrdom, the, the death of the Bishop of Smyrna, a man named Polycarp. Now, I know some of you have heard that and I've recalled account, uh, some parts of that account before, but did you notice the middle of the conversation that Polycarp had with the proconsul? What was the assurance in Polycarp? What was the foundation of his insurance? It was three words. Now, just picture the scene if you can. He can hear the roaring lions caged. And he, he could see probably the beginnings of the pyre being built up. Yet what, what makes a man stand in the arena of his death and, and not want to run away, but rather with dignity and, and with no sense of regret, accept an end, totally unbefitting of a man of his status and age? Three small words. He saved us. Why are Christians right now, at this very moment, in Syria being burnt alive, sexually abused, and being hounded out of their homes? I mean, all the Islamic pressure that's being placed on them, all they need to do is denounce Christ and the violence would end. Why do they not do that? Three simple words. He saved us. 
Why is my friend out in China right now preaching the gospel in little house churches and they have to move around and give secret signs and, and little passwords and code words to get into certain buildings? And, and every time they try to purchase a building for meeting in, because the church is exploding in sizes, you know, bigger than the Communist Party now. You know, and the, the church ministers are getting locked up in, in labor camps for months on end without trial. Why? Three simple words. He saved us. I literally could go on for hours and hours on end. With example after harrowing example of occasions when brothers, both in history and at this moment today, are making deliberate decisions to honour God and their saviour, despite the terrible consequences that they may face. Christians, as the great American preacher and scholar Aidan Tozer uh, once put, they, Christians have a willingness to die right rather than live wrong. Why? Three simple words. He saved us. You see them in there in the passage? They're there twice in verse 5. In the original, they're just once. It's just for uh, emphasis. Uh, He saved us. This is everything, isn't it? It defines everything. It it changes everything in our lives. It it brings light and it brings hope to everything. Do you know what it means to stand? (coughs) And with your brothers and sisters in Christ, say with certainty and with understanding those three life-changing words. If you don't, Can I lovingly say, you are in the right place. He saved us. And I know many of us here are so extraordinarily thankful. This whole letter of Titus has been been flip-flopping, hasn't it? Between that belief of the gospel that he did save us. And a a responding belief, and a responding behaviour, pattern of life. As one who is saved. In chapter 1, if you remember, the balance was spelt out within the local church, especially how one is to run the church. And then in chapter 2, it went to the realm of the home, still very very private, and the Christian's homes, that is. And then in chapter 3, we went to more public life, just in verses 1 and 2, the the place of work, and, and also the community at large. He saved us. Uh, This letter to Titus shows us how we are to respond to that saving work. It's shown us again and again. But I wanted to ask at the beginning, why bother? Why bother? I think it's a problem that many of us face. Uh, We don't actually really understand why we should live a life according to what we believe. There's There's an element of hypocrisy in all of us. Given the fact that we have been saved, ought we to live a consistent life with the fact that we've been saved? I think the problem is that many of us can live such compartmentalised lives, can't we? Because we seemingly get away with it. We have our work life, don't we? How we relate amongst our colleagues and so on, go out for drinks after work. We have a life amongst perhaps our old school friends. Maybe, uh, you know, life with our church friends. Life with our neighbours and those in the community in which, you know, in which we live. And then we also have our life on our own, don't we? 
And they can all be very different. We can have very different standards in each of those, those areas of life. We can justify a certain behaviour or pattern of life, can't we, when we are on our own, that we would never justify amongst our friends and family. Likewise, think about work for a second. What you do and what you say with your work colleagues. Think about the language you use or the tone of conversation that you're willing to engage in. You know, perhaps in drinks after work. Would you ever speak or act or engage in a conversation like that at the back of church? I hope it would never happen, but you know what I mean. See, Paul, when, when writing to Titus, helps, him, helps us move away from that hypocrisy of differing kind of lifestyles in different areas of our lives toward a kind of settled and more resolved and joyful existence, serving our Saviour, the one who has saved us in every area of life. Living in a way that is, as the Bible puts it many times, blessed and happy because we're living in a way that we have been purchased for. If you look, flip back to chapter 2, verse 14, you'll see there, he, that is Jesus, gave himself to redeem us, to buy us back from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do us good. We have been redeemed for this. Barnaby, my eldest son, has been working through Psalm 119 this week in his little Bible study notes over breakfast, little, you know, doing a couple of verses each morning. Interesting, interesting how the psalm begins. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless. And he goes, blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. I think the problem is that so often we don't actually believe that. We don't want to submit our whole lives, every area of our lives, to our saviour. But as a result, Psalm 119 and Titus is pointing to saying, we're missing out on so much. Blessedness and joy and happiness and contentedness. Because we find that when we're serving and honouring our saviour. Well, if you remember, Paul having shown us how to live and work, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, in, our, in the culture around us, he now is going to move on to, to answer that question. Why bother? And the linking word, sadly, is, is missing in our translation. You see at the beginning of verse 3 there, it just says, at, at one time. If you've got an ESV, perhaps on an iPhone, or have a look when you get home, you'll see the word, uh, the verse actually begins with the word for. It links verse 1 and 2 to, uh, to verse 3. That is, we live and work consistent with the truth and reality of what has been done for us. As we will see in these verses today. These verses, they're the foundation for everything really. Our whole lives. Every area of life. I have to say, they're also some of the most beautiful and amazingly penned words ever written. Verse 4 to 7 is actually one sentence uh, in the original. And the dominant verb is repeated in verse 5 for us. He saved us. We're going to look, if you have a look at your outlines here, this is where we're going, we're going to try and have a look at that as we go through it. And I'm going to try and answer three questions. He said, why, how, and essentially what for? Why, how, what for? Let's have a look at that first one. He said, why? 
not because of our well, righteousness, but really our righteous deeds there, our righteous things we've done. Here we see our need for our salvation at the beginning. Look at verse 3 with me again, if you can. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and mercy, sorry, the kindness and love of God, our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. There is a negative to begin with. Uh, like the gospel itself, this, this passage is discomforting to begin with before the comfort comes at the end. We need to know why we need saving. Uh, why we are unable to save ourselves. Why we are, as we see in this verse, so depraved, sick, feeble before a perfect, omnipotent all-present God who is almighty. It seems morose, doesn't it, this first verse? But it is actually only when you see kind of the lowliness of who we once were, the reality of how low humanity really is. It is only when you get to that humbling point that you know that you can then, or you need to, reach out to someone who is just so not like us. Who is everything we are not. Look at it. At one time we were, we were foolish and disobedient. If you go through that verse. That first verse in verse 3. There are four couplets of words which Paul uses there. That bring us very, very low. This is not like any other kind of religion or philosophy. You know the kind of new age spiritualism. Or any other religion actually in the whole world. Any kind of world view. Any kind of self-help scheme. Will assure you that some form of salvation lies within you. But what is really within all of us, or has been, as we see in this verse 3, is it, pretty horrible, isn't it? See, the reality of human existence without God's intervention, His grace, is in these four couplets. I have to say, which one describes you? You're there somewhere, and so am I. The reason we need to be saved is because that is in us. It is the way we were, if we're Christians now, and because when you become a Christian, the old remains, but the, you are a new creation, but you know, you're still uh, sinful, of course. You, you, a remnant remains of sin in you. Even when we become Christians, we know that that is still sometimes the way we are, isn't it, today? Look at them, foolish and disobedient. Literally, it's lacking sense and sensibility. Calvin very famously put it as this, you know, we're mentally and morally depraved. So that's a bit kind of old language, but there we are, that's what we were. And if Christians, that's what we once were. Notice it's past tense. And secondly, deceived and enslaved. Both verbs are actually in the passive there. That is, they show before we were Christians, if we are Christian here, before the Spirit indwells in our hearts, there was another that dwelt there before, that took residence, that dominated our lives. We know that what that is. But being a Christian, many will testify, is, is actually the now, now one has with the spirit in our heart, has the opportunity to, to say no. We're no longer enslaved by our, our passions and, and by the devil's lies. 
So we can say no to that extra drink after work. We can say no to that experience or whatever it may be. Malice and envy. Malice is simply the, the wishing evil on others. Envy is resenting the good of others. And they are rife, aren't they? Certainly envy is. I envy every single person's car in the whole of Ellsford, it seems to me. But um, I, was, I was walking home with someone this week um, after school, and I was just amazed. It was so, I was reading about this, and this lady who'd sold her house for an exorbitant amount of money was envious because someone else, a week later, had sold her a little bit more for a smaller house, and she was boiling over with envy. And I had to very gently challenge her and say, you're really fortunate. You've got a house and it's worth a load of money. Stop being envious. That's what we once were. Being hated and hating one another. Now maybe we don't see this so vividly played out in our culture, in the public realm. But I don't think we've forgot 9-11, have we? Or 7-7 bombings in London. Or even the riots last year. I guess where we see this perhaps not so graphically played out, is in the office sometimes when X doesn't get the job but Y does and X really doesn't like Y. Maybe even in our families we see it as resentment can build. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's because God won't let the kind of heart that's just been described in verse 3 into heaven that we need to be saved. That kind of heart cannot be in heaven. We must be born again, renewed, rebirthed, as we'll see later on. We have no ability before God in terms of salvation. Not at all. The old hymn says, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's now because I know some of us don't actually believe this sometimes. Look at the words. Look at the words in verse 5. It's not because of the righteous things we have done that we are saved. See, notice Paul isn't talking about your worst deeds here. And your worst motives and those terrible things that you're utterly ashamed of. He's talking about all the good stuff that you've done. He's saying, that won't get you to heaven either. That can play no part. You can bring none of that to the table with God for your salvation. None of it counts. It cannot be. Um, We are not saved, very clearly, because of the righteous things we've done. We are like verse 3. And that is not acceptable to God. And that is what the Christian faith is about. It is a a faith of of salvation. Verse 3 humbles us. It confronts us. And I guess for some of us, it may actually offend us. But that is who we are before God. We've got nothing to offer him. We do not have righteousness to merit ourselves before God. And we deserve that eternal judgment that Polycarp so bravely spoke of before the proconsul. That eternal fire of judgment. See, if if we look within for our salvation, that is it. We've got nothing. But look at verse 4. When the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. 
So he saved us. Why? Well, secondly, because of, our, because of his mercy. This, if you like, becomes the source of our salvation. And it's shown out in a couple of words, really. Firstly, let's look at his kindness there. Do you see that? It's in God's nature to be kind to people like you and me. Totally undeserving people who let him down again and again and again. God is incredibly kind. Look at his love there. You see it? His love. This is amazing. This blew me away this week. This word actually only appears once in the whole of the Bible and it's here. And if I tell you the Greek, you'll know the English. The Greek is uh, philanthropia. Yeah? Philanthropia, which we get the word philanthropy from. Two words coming together. It's a connected word in Greek. So phil, as in it's one of the Greek words for love. And uh, anthropos, which is the word for humans. It's the love of humans. God is the ultimate lover of humanity. And he loves it when we love humanity. That is, you know, when scientists come up with a cure for a, a, a disease, when we're not making war against Egypt, but we're, we're making peace. God loves that. But have you seen what happens? When God's philanthropy appears, he saves. How did it appear? Of course we know that. We've seen it back in Titus chapter 2 verse 14 when, when the Lord Jesus appeared there. We point that we know it's about Jesus, but it's here in the passage. Look at verse 4. God is called our saviour there, but in verse 6, you see the linking word? Jesus is the saviour. He's saying God as saviour has come, he's showing us in this passage. And his name was Jesus. God who is kind and Philanthropic, if that is a word, doesn't have to, he doesn't leave us to make our way to him. He came and his name is Jesus. The only way that we can be saved for life eternal is, is not in some subjective, mystical union with some loving, philanthropic spirit in some clouds or something like that. No, we have eternal life when we put our trust in the appeared man. Jesus, who historically is verified more than any other person in history, who appeared in his kindness and his philanthropy, his love of you and me. He is merciful because he is kind and he is loving. He's poured out his mercy on us. Verse 3 shows us we once were that. It's horrible. But, verse 4, now we are saved because, nothing to do with us, but because God has poured out his son, who lived and died and rose again. He saved us. Why? Now let's go to the how. Second point. Halfway through verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Let's go to the second part of that first. Um, how did he save us? It's through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We've looked at that a little bit already. It's the ground of our salvation, so we won't cover this for too long. But as Christ appears, as God's kindness and that philanthropy appears in Christ, we see not just God's character of mercy, but we see mercy in action. 
We can now know that God is merciful. He doesn't keep it to himself. When we look at Christ, we see God's love and we can see it objectively in the person of Jesus Christ. That is, we can come to know someone. We know who we are saved by. And it is wonderful, isn't it? That is a wonderful privilege to have a personal relationship and be able to relate to and see our Saviour. Do you know how much of a privilege that is? I don't know if you um, remember that plane that took off from uh, New York, LaGuardia. Do you remember that one? Hit some Canadian geese, both engines stalled, turned it around, realised he's got to dump it on the Hudson River. Do you remember that? Landed. Perfect. Amazing guy. Um, I, I saw a documentary about that recently. It was so lovely to see. That, that captain, genius man, got out, was stood on the wing, got everyone out. Four people badly injured, but got them out. Last person to leave the wing, get on the boat. Got to the side of the Hudson on Manhattan, and the pictures were fantastic. There he was, the man who had done everything to save those 175 people on that Boeing 737, and they were giving it large. All those big American hugs and yeah, high fives and shaky hands. And, oh my goodness, it was, it was a bit over the top, but you can imagine. <laughs> that is what it's like, isn't it? They could see their saviour. There was no doubt in their minds, no question in their hearts who would save them. One man, his name was Captain Sullenberger. He had saved them. Likewise, there should be no question who can save us. No question. We can't do it ourselves. There's one. His name is Jesus and he's been poured out for us. As our saviour on the cross. That is how we are saved. Through trusting in him and him alone. That begins the answer to how we can be saved. It's the ground of our salvation. It's solely in Christ. Him and him alone. But how can we be transformed from what we were in verse 3. To having a heart that is acceptable for God. We see secondly the means of our salvation. It's through rebirth And renewal. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Four little quick nouns there, and it's so dense this passage, but you get washing, rebirth, renewal, Holy Spirit. Together they clarify how we are saved. Washing, it points to baptism. That simply is the sign of being reborn. That we are we have a newness of life. One that is now eternal. That we are saved by Christ. And that points to the rebirth, the second one. This is interesting because this word only comes twice in the whole of the New Testament. And the only other time is in Matthew 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, 28. Have a look at it later. I'll read it to you now. Parable of the rich young ruler. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious um, throne, you will follow me will also sit uh, on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the renewal word there is actually the rebirth word that we have in Titus chapter 3. And Jesus there, as we've heard, is speaking of the renewal of all things, the rebirth of the whole of creation. Because that is what will happen. This, this whole world which sees so much Frustration on it at the moment, to use a Romans 8 term, 
will be reborn. It will be tsunami free. It will be hurricane free. MS free. Like 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul speaks of it there as the new creation. Restored to its former Eden-like glory. Before sin entered the world through Adam. Because when sin entered the world... um, Humanity not only faced the consequences of being separated from God's presence out of the garden, but it also faced the consequence of death. We know that. But also, creation was frustrated. Read about it if you want. Romans 8, 18 to 25. Really helpful passage on that. And there Paul basically shows us that the destruction that we see in the world around us, all the pain that it causes, all the devastation that it brings, is, get this and hear this right, It is a visible and tangible sign of how angry God is at our moral failure, at our sin. It's not a direct pointing, you have sinned so you get a tsunami. No, but if you want to know how much God hates my sin and your sin, you look at a tsunami. You look at a hurricane. And one day he will renew his creation and make it new. His salvation is not limited to humanity, who he loves. Simply here, Paul is saying, God is not just going to repair us, do a patch-up job. When he saves, as he shows in Matthew 19, he is going to make us new. We are, the word here, reborn. We are transformed from the destructive patterns of life that you see in verse 3 and death as a consequence of those sins to a renewed existence as one of his children, knowing life eternal and a blessed hope today. We're moving on quickly now. Don't worry, not much to go. Renewal, that's the third little noun there. It's a synonym with the rebirth that we just talked about, but it pushes a little bit further to show that there must be a moral kind of renovation to our lives. That rebirth brings. They work together so that when we trust Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, we are made new. There is a radical transformation that should take place in all of our lives. Both eternally, as we're prepared for glory, and, but also today, we should expect to see change. And how does this change occur? Fourthly, Holy Spirit. Because when Christ ascended in heaven, he left his spirit. He poured it out generously, we see there. And notice the tense of poured out is what's called an aorist tense. So it happened in the past, present and future consequences. So it was poured out. And now today is making us new. Transforming us today. And... Just to kind of summarise all of those things together. God has generously poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. And that outpoured spirit has inwardly regenerated us. It's a past action. It has inwardly regenerated us and renewed us and continues to renew us. And this is to be outwardly and visibly signified and, if you like, ratified in our hearts through baptism. That's how they all fit together. We can do questions later for that if you want. Lastly then, he saved us four. Very quickly, conclusion. Verse seven and eight. Firstly, a glorious inheritance. 
This, if you like, is the goal of our salvation. Look at verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We know what justification is. We've looked at this many times before. It has been declared right before God through the perfect life of Jesus Christ being counted to us. Justification and rebirth, though, are simultaneous as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're justified, we are reborn. And therefore, the two come together and say we are heirs. We are heirs of an eternal glory. A glorious hope. That is the goal of our salvation. If you like, it's the end that has no end. He saved us for eternal glory. And secondly, and lastly, a devoted life. And if you like, this is the evidence of our salvation. This is a trustworthy saying. I love that. Because it's the sentence that's just finished. Four to seven is one sentence. He's saying, yeah, you better believe it. Take it to heart. Write it down. Make sure you remember it. It's trustworthy. And I want you to stress these things so that that those who are trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I wish I had more time on this, but we know that a devoted life won't save us, don't we? We've, we've seen that already, verse 5. But a devoted life is necessary. It's, it's necessary fruit and evidence of someone who has been saved. Because it's what we've been saved for. Think back to chapter 2 verse 14. It's what we've been redeemed for. To do things that are good. uh, For God's glory. It is evidence of our salvation to assure us. Look at verse 8 here. Those who have trusted in God. They will be careful. There's the assumption there. To devote themselves to doing what is good. It is evidence. It is assurance for us. If we're living a devoted life for Christ our saviour. We will know. We'll be assured that we're saved. Thirdly, we should therefore be ready in every realm of life. We've seen that through in chapter 1, 2 and 3. Within church, within, within the home life, and of course in the public realm at work and the community at large. But good works also, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, make the teaching of God attractive. That is, if you live a devoted life, entrusting your saviour, living for him, serving him, it will Adorn Christ. Commend Christ to those people you know. It will make the teaching of God our Saviour attractive. Chapter 2 verse 9. He saved us. Three simple words. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Because he is the only one who can save you. Through his work on the cross, he saved us. Christians, my brothers and sisters here, do you appreciate that you have been transformed, renewed, reborn, through the work of God's Spirit being poured out for us when Jesus gave his life for you? He saved us. And in response, I suppose I close it with this. Do you live as a privileged heir of eternal glory? Or do you live as a spoilt child, not honouring your saviour?
Remember, he saved us. Let us therefore devote our lives to him. Let's pray. We're about to sing these wonderful words. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb, because Jesus paid it all. Therefore, all to him I owe. Sin, as we've seen in verse 3, has left a crimson stain. But Jesus, because of God's kindness and philanthropy, has washed it white as snow. He saved us. Thank you so much, dear Father, that you have through the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we devote all our lives to him. Amen. Well, let's stand there to sing this final one.